But not everyone believes that biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who has a theory that is the nerve... Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? And you can schedule it so that the reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response with pigeon pecking. Welcome back to yes. Spit and Twitch's The Animal Cognition Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Brodbeck. Joining me on the podcast today is Tom Zentall from the University of Kentucky. Uh, Tom and uh, his lab uh, look at cognitive behaviors in animals, including you know things like uh, concept learning, social learning, uh, different memory strategies, all kinds of other stuff. The approach they tend to take is that they look for a behavior, say in humans, that uh, looks like a cognitive behavior, not something mediated by simple SR learning, and then they see if they can find that in in uh, non-human animals. Um, this shows us that a lot of times their results uh, have shown us that things that we think distinguish us from animals don't necessarily distinguish us from animals, which is uh, pretty darn cool. Um, the approach leads us then leads them rather to discover all kinds of cool things about the repertoires that are available out there for animals uh, in their behavior. It also can lead to interesting uh, applications uh, of of really simple strategies for concept learning, uh, etc., for people that are learning disabled. Tom has supervised, and I think I counted this correctly, I think it's 17 uh, PhD students uh, that have gone all the way through and got a PhD, which is amazing. So if we ever need to, I don't know, perhaps there's some sort of zombie apocalypse and we need a series of experimental psychologists, perhaps an army, I think we call Tom. Uh, so get, your, get yourself down to Kentucky uh, and, and organize would, would be the way to do it. If, if you're looking for a, uh, an army of experimental psychologists, Tom can, I think, call them all in. Uh, perhaps he has like a bat signal. Anyway, uh, I think, uh, you know, it's not just me that thinks Tom's uh, really been influential. It's obvious, as I said, from the number of people who he's supervised, but, and is over 250 publications, I think. Uh, it's also just evident uh, from what the, uh, happened, I guess it's 2014, Tom gave the master lecture at uh, CO3, the Conference of Comparative Cognition. So uh, hopefully we'll touch on some of this stuff, probably not in the, the zombie apocalypse army, but uh, perhaps other th- a whole lot of other things, I hope. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tom Zentall. Hey, Tom, it's really great to talk to you. How you doing? I'm doing just fine, thanks. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, good. So Kentucky, basically hot and cold running bourbon, right? <laughs> yeah, right now we're just getting rid of 12 inches of snow, but, oh, which right. to you is nothing, but here it just stops everything. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean... Yeah, we have. Well, we're gonna we're gonna get we're gonna get a big bunch. I think we're supposed to get like that much, like thirty centimeters tonight or something. So, but you know, that's that's we call that Tuesday. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I get it. So things are a little different. Um, you're actually the second person in a row that I've had on that uh, gave a CO3 master lecture. I had Ed Wasserman on just last week. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's pretty. Heard. Yeah, it's pretty exciting for for me. I mean, uh, you know, because uh, a lot of you know, people like you and Ed and Al Camel and Sarah, for example. I mean, you were the people that when I was starting out in graduate school, you were the people that, you know, I would meet at conferences and go, oh, my, that's that guy. 
But I mean, oh, you, thank you. Well, it's 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 true. You started yeah. out though uh, as an undergraduate studying engineering, right? That's right, electrical engineering. And then you got interested in psychology. How? I found electrical engineering boring. <laughs> That's as good I, a reason as any. Um, all there was was look, trying to find uh, the voltage or the current in a piece of wire that was part of a complex circuit, mm-hmm. and it just involved plugging in equations and figuring it out. And um, so I went, took a couple of psych courses, and discovered that, um, of course. These psych courses were um, on the soft side, and I decided, gee, I should study psychology because I could bring some science to it. Little did I realize (laughs) that there was already a lot of science in psychology. By that time, it was too late. (laughs) So you were going to go change the world, basically? Essentially, I was going to bring my engineering background to bear. I don't know if it was going to change it, make it more precise. You know, you start studying introductory psychology, you learn a little bit of Freud about... Um, social kinds of experiments, mm-hmm. and you think that you know they need to be better controlled. Um, they need to o- uh, interpret results um, not quite so um, cognitively often, right? And uh, to try to be a little more objective, more scientific. Sure. I mean, and now later on, of course, you find out that you know this is the that, like you said, there is a lot of science in it. Has your engineering background, do you think, helped you at all in, in, in your oh, career? Oh, yeah. I think it did a lot, yeah. So, like, I guess even back in the day of building, you know, putting uh, 28-volt snap leads together and that kind of stuff was probably a snap for you, right? That's right, yeah. Building equipment was a lot easier. This was was just before transistors, but uh, I at least knew what they were, so I could (laughs) uh, play around with them. But, yeah, I didn't use a whole lot of it. It just made me feel confident when dealing with equipment. Sure, like you weren't afraid when you, you saw right. a circuit diagram kind of thing. I remember the first exactly. time when I was teeing a learning class in grad school, uh, and we had all the leftover equipment from other people's labs. And the, the instructor gave me all this and said, just do this. And I went, well, I've never, I can write code. I, I have no idea how to do, what, is, what even is this? And I remember actually touching a, uh, one of the, I, I miswired something and there was smoke. And I... My wife, at the time, my girlfriend, uh, was there to pick me up. We are going to go to lunch, and uh, there was smoke everywhere. I said, let's go to lunch. I'm not doing this anymore today. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah it, it's, the world's changed. But I, there's something to be said for that, those old 28-volt snap leads. I really like those things. Oh, yeah. Um, I still use them. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's still uh, – I've used them in the past. I mean, in grad school, definitely. And, uh, you know – when things smoke, you know there's a bug in the code. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, when you decided to get into psychology, like you said, you know you found this stuff kind of interesting. And what drew you towards the sort of animal learning area rather than, say, human stuff? Well, that was really coincidence, I guess. I um, went out to Berkeley. My advisor told me I, I should go out there because Edward Tolman was there. That's as good a reason as any. Be- he was behind the times, and Tolman had not only retired, but it died in the right. meantime. But Al Riley was there, nice. and actually he was doing developmental work with children I at didn't the time. Know that. Okay. Yeah, he's, he worked with uh, John McKee, who was a faculty member there, okay. a developmental psychologist. And he was trying to decide whether, whether dimensions were already pre-wired, essentially, right. in the brain. Okay. 
And so we did a few experiments like that. He decided that working with children was much too late and that he needed to work with animals that had no experience at all with making discriminations among different colored lights. Right. So we started working with Japanese quail. Nice. We um, hatched them. And the reason for Japanese quail is that they're foul and, and they really don't need much care sure. when they hatch. And they're little. And so we set up some brooders with um, mercury vapor lamps on top. Nice. So when they hatched, they got monochromatic light. Okay. And then, then we auto-shaped them to peck at... Um, a, a, a similar monochromatic light, mm-hmm. and then we tested them for their generalization gradient. Oh, I, I teach about this stuff. Now I know that. So I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. And that so was just, that yeah. was kind of fun, and that's what started his uh, animal research, and, and I just loved the idea of the ability to control that you don't have with children. And I did, I did one experiment with children that just convinced me they were that was not the species to use because... <laughs> They, they don't have tremendous command of language. Yes. And at the same time, they have all kinds of things that interfere, like having to use the bathroom. Yes. And uh, being afraid of the stimuli. Right. And so um, I decided animals would be the better way to go. So, I mean, and I, mean, I was, when I was talking to Ed Wasserman last week, I, I, I quoted something Sarah Shuttleworth always said to me, you don't study species, you study problems. And I mean, so this exactly. seems, sounds like the same kind of thing. Oh, yeah, right. It's just easier to study the problems with animals, I find. Yeah. Uh, it can be a, it, there are some problems that arise, and you can see that in some of the animal literature, where when you take a problem that was studied with humans and you translate that into a problem with animals, one of the things that often gets forgotten is that you gave the humans instructions. Right. And the instructions have to be part of a task with animals. And yeah, exactly. So I've, Throughout my career, I've kind of focused on that difference, and sometimes it makes a huge difference in terms of the way your data are collected. Sure. Um, when you were in grad school, did you think to yourself, I want to be a university professor? Was that part of it? or? Yes, although at the time, most of the way through, I thought that it was going to be at a small four-year liberal arts college. Yeah. That's what I'd gone to, and I, I liked that atmosphere. Yeah. And I got a call from the University of Pittsburgh, and they said, why don't you come and interview? And they convinced me to take a job there. But, um, you know, and then I realized that it's really nice to have graduate students, and uh, you can be much more productive in a lab when you have graduate students who hang around for a while. They can be trained, and they can really do a good job of running a lab. And you've had, I mean, I was looking at your CV uh, over, the, over the weekend. I think 17 people have got PhDs with you. Yeah, that sounds about right. That's, <laughs> I mean, and your lab has always been one that's sort of, a lot of stuff comes out. I mean, I mentioned you got, uh, I think when I, in my pre-recorded intro, you've got like over a couple hundred publications. There's, there's always stuff coming out. Is your lab one where people are doing different projects, but also helping each other and doing little side projects? Or Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's kind of a socialistic lab. Right. Where everyone contributes in terms of running animals and, you know, filling in for people who can't be around. But um, at our lab meetings, we have a kind of journal club where people bring in articles that they find interesting, and very often we come up with a better experiment. Mm -hmm. And one of the students will say, hey, I'll follow that. I'll take that as my own. Nice. But um, So that's how we end up, I don't know, there's at least a dozen 
programs of research. If you look down wow. my CV, you yeah. can see there are all kinds of things we've been looking at just because some student said, let's, let's study it. Right. And I usually give them free reign. Sure. As long as they can come up with a good experimental design. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, and that's, mm-hmm. that's a lot of the, the uh, I think most of us who enjoyed graduate school had that kind of experience, you know, where you were working on your own stuff, but uh, I remember Rob Hampton and I and Ken Chang deciding to do this timing experiment with chickadees, and mm-hmm. I, Rob and I went to Sarah, and she said, we said, is that okay, you know? And she said, as long as it doesn't interfere with your other stuff. And, right. and, uh, sure. and you can scrounge the equipment. <laughs> so that's right. we ran it all on an Apple II, which is yeah. kind of amazing. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. I've still got some of those, although we don't use them anymore. Of course not. I think Bill Roberts still uses a Commodore 64. Uh, Does he really? Oh, I'm just making that up, but I wouldn't be surprised. That's all I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you, your stuff basically generally, I guess the theme of your career has really been about basic processes. Um, and... Is that uh, a conscious choice, or is that sort of an emergent property of the kind of stuff you're just yeah. interested in? Yeah, it's one of those things where I have to look back at it and see if sure. there are any common themes, because yes. I don't really notice that as I'm going along. Right. I think in the last 10 years or so, it's shifted from early on, it was really an attempt to see if animals had some of the same capacities that humans have. Right. It's studied under the right conditions. And in many cases, they seem to. Lately, it's been more do animals suffer from the same um, suboptimal or maladaptive behavior as humans do. And largely, that was suggested by uh, both behavioral ecologists Mm -hmm. and cognitive psychologists who said they shouldn't at all. Right. Well, yeah. I (laughs) mean, they should be optimal foragers and people do behave irrationally, but largely because they don't have enough information. Yeah. You know, they don't know what odds mean. <laughs> Whereas with animals, when you can't tell them what the odds mean. You have to give them the experience. Yes. And once they have the experience, they should behave rationally. Yeah, and, and, and in fact, and a lot of times, and a lot of your work, stuff coming out of your lab has shown that a lot of times they really, really don't. They don't behave rationally. <laughs> no, and I mean, and, and and like you said, behavioral ecology says they ought to. I mean, and, exactly. And I love when stuff when when behavioral ecology makes one set of predictions, and sort of psychological processes make other predictions. That's right. Uh, that's you know very fruitful kind of stuff. And, and like you said, you've had you've been working on this stuff for a long time, uh, last few years. And in fact, I think your talk at uh, CO three talked a lot about that. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what really got you interested in studying that in the first place? Because it, it seems that, and it, because it's something, first of all, it's counterintuitive. I don't think a lot of people would have thought that, you know, pigeons make stupid choices as far as, you know, foraging choices. Uh, so what, what made you think, or, you know, was, it, this, was this another one of these sort of student ideas? Or I started, gee, I'm trying to think. So a lot of it started out with um, research on what some would be called cognitive dissonance in humans. Sure. And it was actually a fellow at the University of Toledo, okay. Har- Harvey Armas, okay. you know the name? Mm-hmm. He, um, he tried an experiment with rats. That it, it was, the idea was interesting, but the design was faulty. Okay. So rats, rats ran down a, um, a runway to get to a choice point. Right. And a, a second group 
had to climb up that runway. The runway was essentially went down to the floor, and so it was like at a 45-degree angle. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know this experiment, sure. Yeah, and, and uh, what he found was that there was no difference in their preference between the S-plus on the straight runway and the S-plus on the runway they had to climb. Right. And um, I told him that I thought that rats didn't find climbing aversive. Sure. And in fact, we have a faculty member here who's interested in enriched environments, and mm-hmm. he puts a bunch of rats in a huge group cage, right. and they're hanging from the ceiling. I mean, <laughs> of course, what, yeah. You know, they climb up the walls and hang from the ceilings. And so I decided to try with pigeons and use fixed ratio rather than uh, right. climbing or anything like that, and it seemed to work really well. Yeah, and I mean, so that was yeah. the first thing. Right. That was the first thing that showed some a bias on their part. They shouldn't have been biased in terms of um, the reinforcer that followed extra work. Right. And so, um, what? And following that, um, I guess Karen Roper and I yeah. ran an experiment in which we looked at signaled versus unsignaled. Mm-hmm. Uh, reinforcement and how they much preferred signaled reinforcement and were even willing to work much harder for signaled reinforcement that actually delayed reinforcement for right. a considerable amount of time. And then we picked up on some work that Marcia Spech did mm-hmm. back in the 1990s, um, which always mystified me. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's the case where pigeons seem to prefer 50% reinforcement over 100% yeah. reinforcement. And I think we finally figured out after doing a number of experiments that were closer, I guess, to gambling behavior, we finally came up with, we have a paper now in press, that suggests that it's the value of the cue that predicts reinforcement rather than its frequency. Okay. So you can make a stimulus appear very infrequently, but if it signals reinforcement, it will be valued over one that either signals less reinforcement uh-huh. but occurs very often, or in the case we just did, um, they actually signal equal amounts of reinforcement, but, but one occurs twice as often as the other, and the pigeons are indifferent. Right. That is, that is it's the value of the st- signal rather than its frequency. Right. It's funny, when I think all this behavioral ecology stuff, whenever people come up with this kind of these kind of results, people always say, well, they're just sampling. They're just, they just have to make sure that everything's always the same way. It's just sampling, which to me is just like a nominal fallacy. You're just giving it a name. You're not explaining it. Exactly. You may just call it exactly. Steve. You know, uh, <laughs> it's, it's giving something a name actually isn't an explanation. Uh, uh, and and I, I think this kind of stuff, and I, I love that you're, you're getting to an explanation of why this happens. Um, of course, it happens in people too. So I have a question to ask you. Did you buy a Powerball ticket? No, I didn't. <laughs> Good man. But but I'll tell you what, um, it, it was quite consistent with this hypothesis that oh, yeah. when when it's only worth $50 million, yeah. you don't find many tickets sold. But if it's worth $500 million, yes. you get long lines for buying those tickets. Yes. And I always thought, on, on the one hand, is, is $500 billion really worth that much more than $50 million in terms of what you can buy? Yeah, exactly. And on the other hand, there's no attention paid to the probability. Yep. You know, nobody, they don't know what the probability is. They know it's not great, but 
it's like that that's totally immaterial just like it is for the pigeon right exactly and i mean it's funny whenever i whenever one of the local lotteries here in canada gets up kind of high whenever you go into the corner store to buy a chocolate bar or something the uh yeah. the guy behind the counter always says you want a lottery ticket for tonight uh and <laughs> i'm always the guy that says uh give, give, give me a pen and paper i'm going to show you what the likelihood of me winning the lottery is <laughs> and in fact back when i was in newfoundland uh they stopped asking me that question because uh, the guy the guy would look at me and he'd <laughs> he say work. you're the guy who showed me how who showed me not to buy lottery tickets i said oh, well that's that's, right. that's my thing i think you could tell him he's more likely to be hit by, hit by lightning oh, almost certainly right the lottery oh yeah. yeah i mean the thing about this is that and I remember in, in your talk at, at CO3, you, you talked about the sort of the, the Concord fallacy, too, the idea that, well, we've already put all That's this right. money in. That's right. Uh, do you think that the, the pigeons are kind of making that kind of maladaptive, like, is that kind of driving their choice as well? Well, it's interesting. I'm, I don't know. I see them as somewhat different because it's, it has to do with investment. Sure. And, uh, and here there's no differential investment in this gambling task. But okay. um, they're... Um, one thing that bothered me about the Concord fallacy or sunk cost, I think is the technical term for it, is that the likelihood of, um, it, it's, uh, the likelihood of being successful if you continue is unknown. Yes. And it's probabilistic. And so in the real world, um, it may not be inappropriate to persist. Mm-hmm. So we set up the conditions with our experiment such that it was known. That is, they have 30 responses to make to get one outcome, and they have 15 to get to the other. And then we give them a number on the first and and ask them, do they want to continue or do they want the 15? And they have a a very nice bias to continue rather than switch to the 15. Right. Um, Do you think that if if we get... If we can understand what drives these maladaptive choices, do you think we could maybe teach people not to make them as much? I mean, one of my favorite quotes from Richard Dawkins is that, I know I'm selfish, but I choose not to be that way today. Uh-huh. I right. mean, do you think you could do, do you think we could do the same oh, thing yeah. with people? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think definitely. Well, hopefully. Well, of course, the lottery people wouldn't be very happy, but. <laughs> <laughs> Which would mess up. But I mean, that's, that's got to be a bad deal. Because I don't know how your lotteries work, but here, I think only 50% of what goes into them comes back out in payment. There's, uh, there, there's money that supposedly goes to education, although I don't know if I've ever seen it. But then um, <laughs> there's money that goes to the guy who sells the ticket and yes. then advertising. And there are all kinds of things yes. that cost money. And so it's, it's a bad bet if, if you pay a dollar and get 50 cents back on average. That people think that maybe they can beat the system. Yeah. Well, actually, it's funny. One of the biggest employers in town after uh, here after the steel plant that's here is the Ontario Lottery and Gaming Commission. Wow. Yeah. So uh, I won't say anything too bad about them. Uh, <laughs> um, the one of the other things that you've been gotten interested in, like a lot of people recently, is is looking at cognition in dogs. Um, what do you think has driven this sudden explosion in in, in interest in in, in in doing experiments on dog cognition? Well, I think because in some ways they are so much like us, right? That is socially. Yes, I mean they really seem to respond, and and they are domesticated. Mm-hmm. Um, and their abilities have not been studied very much, yeah. and yet they're highly available species mm-hmm. if you know how to find them. I mean, if 
they're all around, but if you you know, it's sometimes difficult to study them, unlike rats and pigeons, which you can keep in the laboratory. It's sure. really hard to keep dogs. Yes. And and actually I've stopped doing research with dogs because it's just it's just there's too much variability in right. the dogs that you end up working with in the lab. We we had this sort of doggy daycare for a while that we could um offer to faculty and graduate students. Okay. And so we could work with the same dog for long periods of time, but they differed so much in their size and their breeds and their um, experiences that they had and their age mm-hmm. that we just got a lot of variability. Sure. And uh, I'm I'm just used to working with pigeons where you could you do get variability, but but not nearly as much. You also know the pigeons so well. I mean, I remember when I was a postdoc in Bill Roberts' lab, yeah. and there were there were pigeons in there that I was working with that I had cared for when I was an undergraduate in somebody else's lab, you know, and I would, I would feed Bill's pigeons on the weekend. And we had, we had one that uh, had uh, died and we called the university vet and cause we were concerned, of course, and the university vet comes and does an autopsy and, and we were like, we're we're really worried, right? Comes out and says, um, it died of old age. We went, what? He said, this pigeon, (laughs) did you look at its leg band? It's got the number 77 on it. It was hashed in 1977. And this was 1997. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, this, yeah, this is older than some of our students. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, we get, That's right. and you get to, you get to know the pigeons and you know, you'd know yeah. that I don't know if I should use one Oh one in this experiment. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, Tom, this has been really a great deal of fun for me to talk to you. Uh, I, I really, I've always enjoyed your stuff and I've always just, oh, uh, great. thought that, uh, there's such a wide range of, 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 of material that you've done. And uh, I guess if people want to check out your lab webpage, let's see, what's the link here? It's psychology.as.uky.edu slash users slash Zental. So people should really go check that out. There's all kinds of great stuff there. And if people want to follow me on the internet, they can follow me on Twitter at dbroadbeck. Uh, you can find other podcasts I do at broken-area.com, davebroadbeck.com, mmvh.ca, bestepisodeever.com, and of course here at Spit and Twitches. I really appreciate this, Tom. This was a great deal of fun for me. You're very welcome. A half hour just flew by. Oh, great. Thanks so much. Not everyone believes that biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who offers a theory that is the mirror opposite of eugenics. Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered, or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement. The main thing is what, what we call schedules of reinforcement. Reinforcement is what the layman calls reward, and you can schedule it uh, so that a reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response with a pigeon pecking a little disc, a little spot on the wall, and you can reinforce with food. But you don't reinforce every time, you every, perhaps every tenth time, or perhaps only once every minute or something like that. There are a very large number of, of schedules, and they have their uh, special effects.
share the same genome and so they would try to we are a clone if you want and, and we try to help our um, gametes to go into the next generation in this case is a conflicting system and um, for that reason this is very interesting this is a parasite and this is um, one of the many hosts that is feeding this baby which doesn't look at all like the like the host and nevertheless they manage to use precise trickery to make them do what they want.